Let's take our Bibles and turn tonight to John chapter 3. One of the things that becomes apparent if you're an observer of the media, uh, if you read at all, is the myth of neutrality. The idea that, that, uh, for example, human reason is a neutral observer or assessor of human life, behavior, activity, philosophy or whatever, human reason. The idea that, for example, the media itself is a neutral function. I think, I think of one particular broadcasting corporation from another country that I couldn't name, of course, here, but you might be able to guess what I'm thinking of, who like to project themselves as being utterly neutral, especially when it comes to the news. They take a kind of superior view of the news. They, they think that they are the best purveyors of news in the world. And people buy into this lie because they've told it so often that they're absolutely neutral. You just need to live in that country for any length of time and you realize that, in fact, the people who live there are being brainwashed every day. Because there's no such thing as neutrality, whether it's in the media, whether it's in the academy. We come with our presuppositions, we come with our assumptions, we come with our own points of view, we come with our own agenda to whatever subject we happen to be dealing with. And above all, of course, the whole idea of neutrality in a fallen world must be a myth. Because if the Bible's view of sin means anything at all, it means that absolutely every aspect of human life and human behavior and human thought has been infected and affected by sin. So the world into which Jesus Christ came was not a neutral world. This passage begin, begins with that very famous verse, and we spent time on it last time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's about God, verse 17, sending his Son into the world. What I want to say is that this world into which the Son came was not a human, uh, not a neutral world. That the very coming of the Son of God into this world shone light into the shadows of human existence. That the effect of His coming was then and still is to make people squint and duck to avoid the penetrating exposure to who this Son of God is. His presence in the world exposed the darkness in the world, the darkness that is in everything and everyone, and in every part of everyone. Now let me remind you of the context of Romans, of, of uh, John chapter 3. The apostle has been tracing the gift of life, the work of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah for his people, he's been tracing this to the love of God. Verse 16 is quite pivotal in the flow of this chapter. He is tracing it all to the love of God. If you were to ask John, John, where does salvation come from? He'd say the love of God. Where does the coming of Jesus come from? The love of God. Where does the new birth come from? The love of God. 
Where does the cleansing from sin and the renewal of the Holy Spirit come from? It comes from the love of God. The love of God is the great source and fountain. The Father's purpose, the Father's ultimate purpose in the mission of His Son in the world is the salvation of those in the world who will believe in the Son. And whoever believes in the Son, so John is saying, experiences something of what the theologians call the eschatological life of God. Eschatology is to do with the last things, the end of the ages. The, the theme of so much of the prophets of the Old Testament, pointing forward, pointing forward, ever forward, to the ends of the ages, when there would be a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. And what this chapter is telling us is, people who come to believe in Jesus actually experience in the present something of the life to come, breaking into the present in a new creation, being born from above, that is from heaven, into eternal life. Yes, even now, even in a body that is dying, possessing eternal life now, so that they do not perish, but have eternal life. That is, rather than perishing, that is being doomed to eternal punishment, they are saved from wrath through Jesus into eternal life, the life of the age to come. Now, in verse 17, the mission of Jesus is further clarified. John has already told us that God's love for the world is the source of it. What's surprising there is the state of the world that God loved and which he sent his son in in order that he might save from the world those who believe in Jesus. It is John's understanding of the world which he defines back in chapter 1 verse 9. The world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. You see, what he's talking about here is not the planet. It is the world of men and women, the society, the community of humanity in its distance from God and its rebellion against God. When it says it did not know God, it doesn't mean it didn't know about God, but rather it did not want to know God. It suppresses the knowledge of God it has. It pushes God to the margins of its experience. It wants to hide from God. It's in a state of ignorance about God, but ultimately it's in a state of condemnation by God. So the world into which the Son came is a fallen world, it is a lost world, it is a perishing world. That is the world into which the Son came. And He came to be what? He came to be human. He took on flesh, chapter 1, verse 14. He came to bear sin, chapter 1, verse 29. The Lamb of God came to bear the sin of the world. He came to die in order that men and women may be saved out of the world. Now, that's precisely what Jesus' mission to this lost world is all about. And here in verse 17, the apostle develops that proposition. He then goes on to distinguish the parties involved and eventually will show us the process, describe the process that is 
underway. So first of all, the apostle develops the proposition. The proposition is that Jesus Christ has come into a fallen world to save those who believe in him. And in developing this proposition that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, the apostle introduces us to legal language. You notice that in verse 17. The language of condemnation is legal language. He's already talked about people either perishing, verse 16, or having eternal life. So the opposite of eternal life is to perish. It is eternal perishing. Now he uses this other picture. He says that the state of the world is not only that people are perishing, losing life, it also is saying this, that it is condemned and needs saved. It's perishing and needs life. It's condemned and needs rescued. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Father sent his Son into the world. You notice that. That's his birth, his enfleshment as a human being. He would leave the world when he's ascending and glorified in heaven. And once again, we're reminded that what has been done for humanity has been done by God. Let me show you this again. Look at verse 16. God so loved the world. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. God is the author. He is the mover. He is the prime subject here. He sent the Son. Everything that has been done for humanity has been done by God the Father's initiative. In other words, what we're not to understand is that somehow or other Jesus is the good guy and God is the bad guy and Jesus extracts from God something that God is reluctant to give. It's the very opposite. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation is God's initiative. Actually, salvation cost him. He had to sacrifice his one and only son. That's the lesson of verse 16. He's initiating, it's his idea, and it's his sacrifice that lies behind it. But do you see the point that's being made here in verse 17? The point that's being made here is that when he sent his son into the world, it was not part of Jesus' mission at that time to condemn the world. Now here he's using the word, the word to condemn in the final sense, in the sense of a great court case in which all the evidence is produced, all the arguments have been made, the judge is summing up, the sentence is being announced, and the, the sentence is condemnation. We know, because John tells us, we know that at the end of history, in fact, there will come a day when Jesus will come into the world to condemn the world. That's where history is headed. That is, that is the ultimate destiny for Humanity, all of us, are going to stand before the judge on that final day. There will be a day of judgment. And here is the interesting revelation. On that final day, when all creatures are gathered together, the world's judge will be Judge Jesus. For he says, for judgment, I've come into the world. The Father has given me authority to execute judgment. Because I'm the Son of Man. 
So that phrase, the Son of Man, takes us back to the book of Daniel. Daniel has a vision of this heavenly being who comes in the clouds of heaven and who is given authority to judge. He sits in judgment over the world. He brings all of humanity together before him, and he judges the world. The Apostle Paul put it like this. There's coming a day in which God will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the coming judge. History is moving towards that final judgment. But when we read John chapter 3, verse 17, it gives us an insight into this day. This day is not that day. This day is a day in which that final judgment still lies ahead of us. This is a day which the Apostle Paul calls a day of grace, a day of opportunity. This is a day in which that final judgment is being held back by God for this particular reason that you find in this text and in the previous text, that in this world, men and women might come to believe in Jesus. As long as there is one elect person in the world who will come to believe in Jesus, that final day of judgment will be held back. It will be held back. When the Son of Man came into the world, do you notice? The world into which he came was already lost, already condemned, and already perishing. He came into that condemned world to save some out of it. That's the teaching of John 3.16. He came so that those who believe in him should not perish. That's the teaching of John 3.14. If you look, go back to John 3.14 and 15. There's a picture painted from the Old Testament, the story, a real story. It happened in the story of Israel where they were in the desert and they were bitten by these poisonous snakes and they're dying and Moses lifts up... Uh, a bronze serpent on a pole, and he says to the people, here's the remedy, look at the pole, look at the bronze serpent, and you'll be healed. You'll be healed. You're dying. If you look to this, you'll be healed. The Son of Man is lifted up on a pole. He is lifted up on a cross, so that if we look at the crucified Jesus, it isn't just that we're healed, we're saved. We're rescued from a fate worse than death. So in this verse, we find a theme. A theme that recurs in the Old Testament as well, and that's this. God doesn't want that final day to come. That's why he's taking so long. That's why he's allowing humanity to go on and every, every generation, in a sense, to be exposed to his truth that he declares in nature, but particularly that he declares in Jesus Christ. He holds it back. In fact, in Ezekiel 18, listen to what it says. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Judgment is not what God wants to do. It's his strange work. But he will do it. Finally, he will do it. He's holding it back graciously. So what is God doing in the present? Well, God's working in the present, notice verse 17 again, in order that the world might be saved through Jesus. 
That's a rescue word, isn't it? It's a central aspect of Jesus' mission. It implies a great danger. The danger is that in a state of condemnation, we'll stand before God and his judgment at the last final day will be to confirm our condemnation and send us to hell. Jesus comes into the world to do the work of salvation. So the apostle develops that proposition. And then secondly, the apostle distinguishes the parties involved in this court case. Look at this. Whoever, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, now what's he saying? What he's saying to us is that the coming of Jesus distinguishes among human beings, distinguishes a person from another person. What is this distinguishing thing? Well, on the one hand, there are those who believe. What do they believe? They believe in the name of God's one and only Son. They believe who Jesus is. They believe into Jesus Christ. They believe that he is all that Scripture says he is. When Jesus says that he's come from the Father and that he's going back to the Father, they believe that. When the Bible says and the witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, they believe that. They believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. They believe. And there is no more condemnation for those who believe, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because they've received him, they're resting on him, they find their place now in him, and in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation for those people. See, it's one set of humanity. And the only feature that distinguishes them from everybody else is not the clothes they wear, usually. It's not, uh, it's not, not the habits they've got, or, or the food they eat, or the cars they drive. What distinguishes this group of people is that they believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. And therefore, for them, there is no condemnation. On the other side, there are those who do not believe. Everyone in the world is in need of a Savior because the whole world, you notice verse 18, is condemned already. The world we're in is condemned already. Even before the final judgment, the verdict has already been produced. The final judgment will simply prove the verdict to be true. Okay? The final judgment will demonstrate how righteous God is and how right God is to have condemned the world. And that evidence on the final day will be conclusive. It will be overwhelming because the whole world is guilty before God. If you just glance for a moment down to verse 36, the very last verse of the, the chapter, you'll see how it expresses it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remain, remains on him. What is that telling you? It's telling you the wrath of God already is upon people. Already is upon people. Now, what you know is what distinguishes then these two parties. What distinguishes them is not that one group is good and one group is bad. Faith in Christ is what splits humanity apart. People are condemned for not believing in the name of Jesus. 
What does his name mean? It means Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, there are many people who are prepared to say they believe in God, aren't they? They believe in God generically. They believe in God however you conceive him to be. That's one of the phrases that people use. There are people who believe in God, if you mean by God some kind of spiritual existence. They believe in God in that sense. Other people believe, and they would say, it's important, isn't it, that you have a faith. It's good for people to have a faith. You hear that on shows like Oprah, if you ever are unfortunate enough to watch one. Uh, They believe that faith in and of itself kind of stands alone. And having a faith, unspecified in what? Having a faith is good for you. Some people have faith in faith. But it's a particular faith. It's in view, isn't it? A faith in Jesus that's mentioned here. For many, many years in, in, back in Britain, I used to be involved with uh, the universities and colleges Christian Fellowship. And uh, in working alongside them and alongside Christian unions on university campuses all over the United Kingdom, I was involved in a number of university missions. And very often in doing those missions, especially in the early days, there was a kind of formula that you used. You would have a night, usually the Wednesday night. There were several evening meetings. And the, but the Wednesday night, I remember, was always usually just about who is Jesus. And words to that effect. You always had a fancy title, but that was what it was usually about. And people, very often, I noticed, that was the night that attracted most people. Uh, people who weren't Christians would come to that evening because they were attracted by the person of Jesus. They wanted to hear more about who Jesus was. And and there are lots of lovely positive things to say about Jesus, his character, his personality, uh, uh, the way in which he received people, his treatment of women, and so on. There's a lot of very positive things that you can say about Jesus. He's very, very attractive. And that was fine. The problem was the next night you were going to look at the cross. And what the cross does is immediately make Jesus unattractive because there is in the cross this kind of underlying absolute, absolutism that says that Jesus is the only way of salvation for the whole world. Well, people don't want to do that. What they want is to stick at that picture of Jesus as the ultimately nice man. And they want to kind of then place him into a a preconceived niche in their mind. So you have Jesus, the revolutionary, or or Jesus, the socialist, or in extreme circles, Jesus, the Marxist, or Jesus, the guru, or Jesus, the environmentalist, and so on. They have all kinds of things that they would like to get Jesus on their side for as they think about him. But the name of Jesus tells us who and what he is. He is Yahweh, People come to your door and they say they're a Jehovah's Witness. You tell them, or I tell them, I'm a Jehovah's Witness too. I believe in Jehovah Jesus. Do you? They don't, so they go. He is Yahweh, that is the covenant Lord God of Israel, who created the universe, and he is the Savior of the world. Now what that means is this. Anybody in the world who wants to be saved from wrath and condemnation 
has to be saved by the Savior of the world. He's the only one announced to be, qualified to be, the Savior of the world. That is, wherever you are in the world, whatever your circumstances in the world, whoever you might be in the world, there is only one Savior for you, and his name is Jehovah Jesus. Yahweh of hosts. God in Christ. And so he distinguishes the parties. And then the third thing that this passage talks about, uh, we find him describing the process. There are two big biblical images or metaphors used here to explain what's going on in the world and the world that God sold up. The verdict is ominous. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. This is, he's using the word judgment there, not in the sense of final judgment, but this is the, this is the conclusion. This is, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Right at the very beginning of this gospel, chapter 1, where we read the word became flesh, that is, Jesus coming into the world, it says this, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. It tells us that the light shone in the darkness, even more brightly than it shone at creation. It shone in the darkness. Jesus, later on in John's Gospel, chapter 8, will call himself the light of the world. Because as light, he brings an accurate and a true and a trustworthy revelation from God of God. So that when people see Jesus, they see how holy, wise, and good God is. They see Godness perfectly expressed in human shape. Here is the whole deity compressed, as it were, into a human form. Josiah Condor, 18th century poet and hymn hymn writer, in his famous hymn, puts it like this, in him, in him most perfectly expressed, the Father's glories shine, of the full deity possessed, eternally divine, true image of the infinite, whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. Jesus, the very presence, the very presence of God himself that John refers to in chapter 1. God is light and in him is no darkness at all in his first letter. And this word was God. And when the word became flesh, light came into the world because God is light. And, and light and truth are often linked in, in In John's gospel, Jesus is the sum of truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Later on, Paul would say, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you would say anything, truly you must know that it is in relation to Jesus, because all things were created by him and for him. It's the purpose of all things, the origin of all things, the meaning of all things. John Piper puts it like this. When he comes, the truth about all things comes. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about the way of salvation, the truth about what is good and beautiful, the truth about evil and ugliness, the truth about how we ought to live. 
All right thinking, all right feeling, all right doing is defined and measured by Jesus. What's the human reaction to this perfect revelation of God? Two reactions are mentioned here. First, there are those who shrink from the light. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light. This is the natural state of people in the world. This is our nature. We're in darkness. We love darkness. So when the light turns on, we shrink from the darkness. It hurts our eyes. We want to close our eyes and put our hands over our our eyes in order to to hide from this brightness that has come into the world. We want to switch the light off. We start groping. Where is the light switch? It's far too bright. Let's put it out. That's the picture that's being painted here. Perhaps the majority of people choose to dismiss the knowledge of God that comes with Jesus, to suppress the knowledge of God. They choose to try and stamp it out. When Jesus came, they could not live with him. Just as in Moses' day, the people of Israel couldn't live with Moses, and they they complained about him, and they complained about God to Moses. And it was the moral purity of God that they most disliked. People loved darkness rather than light. It's not the idea of God that people object to per se. Nor is it the idea of Jesus who can be spun into being the nice, charming, helpful model human being that people might like. People reject God in Christ because He's a challenge to their moral autonomy in the world. Their deeds are evil, says this passage. R.C. Sproul has a Funny story, he borrowed it from somebody else, but he tells the story of a man who sent 25 letters to men he knew in the little town in which he lived, and the letter was quite brief. All has been exposed. Flee at once. Next morning, all 25 men had, had left the town. And you imagine it. You get a letter like that from somebody you know. All has been exposed. Flee at once. None of us could bear to have our lives displayed on some giant screen. Can you imagine people driving into Philly on one of the major highways on a Monday morning, and there in some of these big screens, somebody's projecting onto them, your life. Couldn't bear it. Couldn't bear it. We don't come to the, we don't come to the light. Don Carson puts it like this. They're not willing to live by the truth. They valued their pride more than their integrity, their prejudice more than concrete faith. Why do they shrink from the light into the darkness? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. They fear exposure. Exposure brings shame and conviction. And where Jesus, the light of the world, begins to shine in a person's life, it must either break that person or bring that person to repentance. It must break them or drive them to repentance. It either drives them further into the darkness in which they can hide or it drives them into the light. But it's intolerable to us. It's intolerable when our sinful works and thoughts and feelings are forced out into the light of Christ. Sin is so ugly, so monstrous, so hideous, it must surround itself with darkness. It must live in the land of illusion and deceit. 
It hates the light. It loves the darkness. It will not come into the light. But there's a second group. Those who shrink from the light and those who come to the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The opposite of shrinking from the light is to come to the light. And those who do so, do so because of what is true. Of what is true. Now, I want you to notice that there's a distinction here between these two categories, the people who shrink and the people who come. The people who shrink are defined in relation to their deeds. And the second category is defined in terms of doing the truth. Now, in John's gospel, if you take that word truth and you look around and see how it's used in this gospel, you'll find usually it's used, if not entirely used, in relation to Jesus. So, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Chapter 8. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this second category of people respond positively to the truth as it is in Jesus. And there's another category difference between these two groups. In the first group, there is great fear of coming into the light, fear of exposure and shame. In the second group, however, there is no fear of coming into the light. Now, this does not mean that this second group of people have nothing to hide. Understand this. This is not saying that this second group of people have nothing to hide, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to confess, or nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, what we find out as we explore the rest of John's writing, for example, his first letter, you discover that he fully expects that this group of people will sin and will need to confess their sin. And there's provision made for them when they fall, and they will need to come into the light, as it were, to confess their sin. It isn't that they... This people, these people have nothing to hide. Nor is it that these people are morally and spiritually superior from everybody else. Nor is it that they are a bunch of self-righteous pricks. It's none of that. No, the real difference with this second group of people is this. That whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been carried out in God. Here's the difference. These people, group A, they don't come to Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. When they come into the light with their deeds, their deeds don't amount to a hill of beans as far as God is concerned. Their deeds are tainted by their condemnation. Their righteousnesses are like filthy rags. God does not look at anything they do, no matter how good it is, and regard it as good. He doesn't see it as good. Category B. They've come to Jesus. They've come to the truth. They've believed in Jesus. We saw that distinguishing earlier on. This is what distinguishes this group of people. They believe in Jesus. And they too do good things. But the difference is this, because they believe in Jesus, these good things they do, they may not be perfect things. They, they may not be excellent things. They may not, 
They may not be outstandingly good things. They may not be all that particularly wonderful, but, but they're good things that they do. Count with God. Because he receives them. Because they come in the truth. They come in the Son. They come in the Lord Jesus. And everything they do is now, you see, seen through the binoculars or the eyeglasses of God as Jesus works. And he commends. He commends their intentions and their actions and their charitable giving and their hard work. He commends their work. It is... I take issue actually with the prayer that we said at the very beginning here because if we were praying that as believing people, let me say this. If we were praying that as believers, we cannot say about our works anymore that they are filthy rags. Our works before we became a Christian were filthy rags and don't count with God. But now do you see, this is the key phrase, notice this, they come clearly into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. These are the good works that God prepared beforehand for them to walk in. Ephesians chapter 2. These are the good works that God actually is glorified by. These are good works that God takes note of. Here is how Bishop Westcott puts it. These good works are carried out in God. They have been done through God, quote, in union with Him and therefore by His power. The ultimate contrast is that the believer, the one who loves the light and who comes to Jesus, comes by the grace of God, comes with a, a sense, a profound sense of, God's, of a God-dependent humility. Every good thing he does, he, he realizes is done only because of God. This is the glory goes to God. With the help of God, I'm able to do this. Only by God's power can I do this. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out by God. They come into the light, and they don't come in the light with a self-congratulatory pat on the back and say, see what a good boy am I. They come into the light and they say, how great is our God. How good is our God. How wonderful is our God who has brought me out of darkness into light. Who's given me the power of the Spirit. Who's brought me into this new creation. Where the Spirit is at work in my heart. Cleansing me from the past. Now making me live a life. Helping me to live a life that, please, that actually pleases God. Pleases Him. The little things I do for Him. Please him. He takes delight in it. Because they're actually done in God. They're done through God. They're done in God. They're done by God's power. And therefore God gets the glory. God gets the glory. So these verses expound this fundamental difference between these two groups of people in the world. Not good and bad. People who are distinguished by their belief or unbelief in Jesus. And everything else hangs on that fundamental thing. Those who believe in Jesus don't shrink because they feel condemned. They come into the light, however much they're sinners. They come into the light because they know that anything good in them has been done by God. 
and by God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you have called us out of darkness into the light of your love. And we pray that tonight as we think about these things, that you'd help us, perhaps someone here this evening who's stumbled in on this snowy night, and uh, they don't know you. They don't know who you are. Help them, Lord, to, to take the risk of faith and to say to the thin air, as it were, to say to heaven, to say to you, God, if you're there, please speak to me. Please show yourself to me. Please reveal yourself to me. Please make, help me make sense of what you've revealed in the Bible. For those who are a bit further along, we pray that tonight they would put their life there all into the hands of Jesus, receiving him, resting on him, trusting him alone for their salvation. We pray in his strong name. Amen.